The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. This week, the story of Madison Bowler and Elizabeth Califf, two crazy kids from Minnesota in love like thousands of other couples, but different in this respect. He joined the third Minnesota during 1861, served with that regiment through the Civil War, They wrote back and forth, got married at one point, had a child, but unlike so many other couples, kept their letters, not just his from the front, but hers from the home front as well. So that today we have a rare collection of a couple's letters. They've been published in the book, Go If You Think It Your Duty, a Minnesota couple's Civil War letters. They reflect insight into Civil War families and we'll talk with the author of that book, Andrea R. Farugi, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a absolutely stunningly beautiful Friday afternoon in January 2012 from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Not speaking for the university or the UNC system or any of its other components, nor will my guest speak for her institution or anyone but herself. The UNC system is heavy on my mind as I just returned uh, about 20 minutes ago from a two-day conference of department chairs of schools throughout the UNC system and discovered that whether you're in a big department or a small department, whether it's history or physics or mass communications, whether it's the flagship UNC or the uh, the real school of the people that we are here at East Carolina University or the small liberal arts college that is UNC Asheville or the dysfunctional, uh, well, I'm not going to name those schools, but 
but there are many components in the system. Whichever one, all the departments, we've all got the same problems. No one's got enough money. Everyone's got too heavy a teaching load uh, if we're still supposed to be research active at the same time. It's all a challenge everywhere. So uh, it was Misery Loves Company. I guess it was fun in that regard, but it's good to be back for the weekly one-hour vacation that is Civil War Talk Radio, getting away from all of that. Uh, we have an interesting show today. We have interesting shows coming up in the weeks ahead. Uh, once again, next week, no live show. The, the, this has been an unusually demanding semester already. We'll have a string of live shows after that, but I apologize. I have to be away. We're conducting a conference here on campus uh, next week, New Voyages to Carolina, that will look at the early history of uh, this part of the world, the uh, uh, early uh, contact period of Carolina, North Carolina history, uh, organized by uh, Larry Tice, uh, who has an appointment here in our department. He's one of the founders of public history in the United States, and he's organized a, a stellar conference. Uh, I'm participating as a bit player, uh, but I have to participate and can't do the show at the same time. So, no live show next week, but then we've got Don McHugh. He's the curator of the Lincoln Shrine in Redlands, California. Uh, Jack Dempsey has written about Michigan in the Civil War on the 17th of February. Uh, 24th of February, we'll have Jason Phillips talking about the diehard rebels. Adam Aronson on March 2nd talking about uh, St. Louis in the Civil War. And that'll get us to spring break, and we'll have more good ones after that. But that's what we've got going thus far. The uh, uh, show started late. If you're just downloading, you won't notice that. But if you are listening live, you'll notice we got a little bit of a late start today because this is the most technologically advanced uh, show yet on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, Assuming our, our guest is still here, we'll find out in just a moment, then we're all going to be on Skype today, and we'll see how that affects the sound quality. I hope uh, you can let me know about that. But we've uh, entered the 21st century. Uh, given that we're on Skype, my computer screen is on, and you hear that little dinging. Every time you hear that, it's somebody emailing me with a request uh, for money or some other other thing they think that I, as department chair, can give them. Uh, the answer in all cases is no, but uh, I can't turn that off uh, while while we have this going, at least not this week. We'll solve that next week. More technology. Um, the uh, uh, it, Over the past week, uh, as always, we, we want to thank people who donate to the show's book fund, Civil War, uh, tr at aol.com is the address to send a PayPal donation or contribution. Not tax deductible. I'm not bound to do anything good with it, but I try to. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I bought a, uh, a volume that uh, creates a set of rules to conduct miniature battles on the tabletop with miniature Civil War or other 19th century figures. Um, called Field of Battle. Uh, I'd seen it before. It's a fascinating uh, essay into uh, the mechanics of combat in the Civil War. And so I thought I'll, I'd read the first edition and wanted to get the second. And when I did, the uh, author uh, refunded the, the payment from Civil War TR because he was a fan of the show and wanted to make a contribution in kind. So it was a, a I was certainly touched and appreciated it. Uh, you never know where Civil War talk radio listeners are, 
are out there. So one more technological item came up, and that's what we'll talk will bring us to our, our guest today. Uh, this was the first book that I did not read in my hands, but uh, have read electronically. Uh, the book was not in our university library, not so many books are these days, and it was uh, not easy to get hold of a, a paper copy. There are, there are ways to do it, but using the uh, PayPal account of, of your donations to the show, I bought an electronic copy and read it on the screen. I won't tell you how many pages I read during the uh, two-day chair seminar I was at the last two days, uh, but the number is, is, is pretty high, actually. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's the wave of the future, I guess. Uh, I don't have a Kindle or Nook or anything like that yet. I know the rest of the world does, and I'm sure I'll get one sooner or later. But just reading this on the laptop screen, uh, it it's not it's not the same uh, as a, a paper book, but it does give you some uh, some some real advantages. One of which is being able to read it uh, inconspicuously while someone else is talking to you. Uh, so, with that, let's go. Uh, at long last, to our very patient uh, guest, uh, Andrea Forugi, is a professor of history at uh, at Union College, I believe. Uh, well, let's find out. Uh, Andrea, are you there? I am. Thank you for uh, waiting so long to come on today and, and for joining us on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Now, uh, you and I met last October at the uh, training session for the Let's Talk About It program. So uh, I, I hope that puts us on a first-name basis. You can call yes. me Jerry. You can call uh, me Andy. Thank you. I'll, I'll do that. Um, the, uh, uh, that program has begun. I did my first uh, uh, book discussion for a group at the uh, New Bern Public Library last week. Have you begun discussing yes, uh, Civil our, War books? Yes, we had our first session um, on the 17th of January. Now, the book we discussed was, uh, and all the groups across the country are discussing the same books, uh, was, was March by Geraldine uh, Brooks, which is the story of what the, the father in the book Little Women is off doing in the war while they're being little women. Uh, how, how did your discussion go? It was, it was wonderful. It was lively. Um, it was um, really compelling. We talked a lot about how do we understand history and the past? How do we think about fiction and nonfiction? Because we also had the excerpt from Louise May Alcott's um, journal. Um, and it was interesting because many of the people uh, talked about the background they have with little women and how that helped or, or hurt their uh, ability to read March. And then others who had never read Little Women and didn't have a lot of familiarity with it and uh, found it really interesting and compelling. So it, it led to very interesting conversations. Uh, yeah, our group went went very well. Also, I had never read Little Women, so I did so over the, the holiday break before reading this book, thinking it was a necessary background. And, uh, you know, I, I figure I came out ahead in the deal already because I got to read a, an American classic I'd never read before. Uh, but uh, with uh, one of the questions that came up early on was, what is uh, March's first name? He's always called Mr. March. It, that, that's what we concluded. He has no first name in the book. Uh, no, I'd have to look and see if um, I, I am a big Louis May Alcott fan. So I read um, the other books that follow this, which is um, Joe's Boys and 
little or little men and Joe's boys. And Mr. March appears in those in different um different um sections of those books. And I don't think he's ever referred to by his first name, but I could be I could be mistaken. I think that's an interesting uh uh interesting thought there that that he's portrayed that way. In uh the the characters and they're not fictional characters, but uh, uh, real people that you write about, uh, uh, whose letters you you've uh, collected and, and annotated and, and uh, trans well, uh, and and published in in this book. Go if you think it your duty. Uh, they the names matter to them. Uh, this one of the things I've, I've, that that struck me when I began reading this was how careful they are about using whether it's okay to use each other's first names and of course uh, they do get married and that changes but uh, let's talk about uh, James Madison Bowler and uh, Elizabeth Califf. Uh who are these people uh, in 1860 1861 okay um, what's really interesting about the two of them is they both actually have um, ancestral roots or uh, several generations earlier uh, their ancestors had been on opposite sides of the American Revolution. So uh, they uh, both migrated from one from New Brunswick, that's the Califf family, and um, James Bowler grew up in Maine. And by 1859, the Califs and James Bowler are both in um, a town called Nininger, Minnesota, al- along the Mississippi River, just south of St. Paul. So they both originated from the east eastern side of, of the continent um, and end up in this small uh, growing town initially um, and then a town that's uh, on, its, on its way down by the time the Civil War opens in 1861. It's a small town. There's only a few hundred people. Is that right? Right. It depends on who you read. The, it's boosters. <laughs> uh-huh. I claim that it's a lot bigger. Um, it's part of a, a, a wave of paper towns that were boosted and promoted in the uh, 1850s, um, but all of that fell apart in 1857 with the Panic of 1857. So um, our most accurate data is there's around 300 people uh, about the time that they began writing their correspondence. And that correspondence begins before the war. There's, you have one or two letters from, from before the war. Right. Uh, at this point, um, James Madison Bowler was the school teacher in Nininger, this town, and Elizabeth Califf and her two sisters were pupils in his school, and he was staying with her aunt, and um, he went to St. Anthony, uh, which is uh, near where Minneapolis is now today, and he wrote her from there, and that's when he asks whether or not he can use her first name. Uh, and so they have a just a two-letter exchange in uh, May of 1860, and she says yes, and then he must come back because we don't have any more letters until the following um, late April, early May, when he uh, returns to what become the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul. He returns there and uh, enlists uh, for the Civil War. The... Uh one of the things we discussed at the department chair's workshop I just returned from was uh, dealing with difficult faculty situations. And when your faculty are writing to their students uh, with a first name, the first name today would be okay, but 
with with uh, James Madison or Madison, I guess is what he goes by. Right. Uh, this leads to romance, and that's not okay with teachers and students. At least not at my institution. Uh, right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, for them it was a big it was a big milestone to be able to do that, and then they take it much further in their later letters. They use nicknames: my hubby, my dear wife, um, and and so they're very um, they're much more informal over time. So they uh, now the war when the war begins, um, uh, eighteen sixty one. Uh, the he enlists well. Well, in first Minnesota, let's talk about the Minnesota war effort. Uh, uh, Minnesota immediately raises a three month regiment, right? Which is the first Minnesota, and uh, it's it's clear that Madison enlisted in the first Minnesota, which is the most famous of Minnesota Civil War regiments, but he did not uh, become part of the three year enlistment of the first Minnesota, and instead enlisted in the fall of 1861 in what became the third Minnesota regiment. So he misses the the first uh, the, the earliest battle, but enlists in 1861. What is uh, this is still when when North and South are are filled with the uh, eagerness to go to war. There, there's a a lack of reading about the whole thing, and uh, certainly a lack of realization what this is going to mean for everyone. And uh, uh, one can imagine everybody being enthusiastic. Are both uh, uh, Madison and uh, Elizabeth equally enthusiastic about his enlistment? They're. Not equally, I would not say that. He certainly is, and he feels a lot of camaraderie with the men that, with whom he enlists. Um, Company F, of which he was part, um, is made up of a lot of the men that are in the area around him and in communities nearby, so they're, they often know each other. Um, Lizzie tries to be supportive, and she participates in helping sew a flag and um, collecting things for the the soldiers um, as part of volunteer organ, uh, uh, organizations. But she's never as enthusiastic. And at one point, she says to him later on, "You know, I'm not American," reminding him that she was born in in Canada. So she certainly doesn't feel that she has the same uh, level of of interest or patriotism that he does. The uh, uh, a quick shout out to uh, our engineer Chad that I'm not seeing any uh, messages, written messages today on Skype. So uh, when it's time for a break, start playing the music and I'll I'll hear it. Um, the uh, uh, so there's there's a, a division even at the beginning in terms of their uh, opinion about the level of commitment that. Uh, that he or they, as a as, as a family unit, as they're going to become, uh, will owe toward toward the Union. Uh, the third Minnesota that goes off off to war is at first uh, joins the Army of the Ohio uh, and serves in in the Middle West in Kentucky, uh, in Tennessee. Uh, talk about their their early service. Madison describes it very much as being about picket duty and guard duty and a lot of marching. Uh, they, take, they foray into eastern Tennessee at one point and, and then march right back out. Um, for him, it doesn't feel like war for a long time. And I think there's a, a level of frustration, especially as he hears war news from the Army of the Potomac and what's going on in the eastern theater. 
So um, the third Minnesota does have interactions with what become known as contraband, and they do pass information back and forth and use that to try to track movements of, of the um, Confederate Army. Um, but he spends a lot of time describing the way things uh, look, the way the seasons are different. Um, when he's in Tennessee, he's really struck by that compared to Minnesota. Um, and he almost gives a sense of he's not really at war for probably the first almost year of their correspondence until um, the Battle of Murfreesboro. And that, um, now that's not the, the, the Battle at Stones River, also called Murfreesboro, that, that listeners would immediately think of in December 62, no. January 63, but rather uh, in, in uh, July 1862, Murfreesboro is a, an outpost on the supply line that connects Nashville with Buell's army that is inching its way toward Chattanooga uh, and is under instructions to supply itself uh, initially from from Memphis which proved impossible and then later from from Nashville uh, but Bedford Forrest's troops attack the outpost at Murfreesboro in the third Minnesota uh, how does that go? <laughs> Not very well. If, if for someone who has been looking forward to being able to show that he's uh, behind the war effort, that he supports the Union, and really wanting to, to participate, um, they the Third Minnesota um, is kept toward the back, behind most of the other fighting that goes on. And in fact, uh, their colonel, who was accused. Um, by different people of being um, drunk at that point, um, surrenders them uh, before they're actually uh, really firmly in action. Um, and this is humiliating to the third Minnesota. Um, it's their first real time that they are on the outskirts of battle and they hear the guns and they aren't just doing this for parade purposes and um, it, it's, it's over before they really get to be a part of it. In the, the months leading up to that battle, when they were stationed, I, guess, I think they were in the 23rd Brigade, uh, they're with other regiments there, and I once did some work on the 9th Michigan, which was one of the other regiments in this battle, and there was some bad feeling, apparently, between the Michigan and Minnesota regiments that led the uh, whoever was commanding the the brigade, it might have been Duffield, the colonel of the Michigan mm -hmm. regiment, uh, to to redeploy them around Murfreesboro, not in such a way as to defend the city against any sudden raid, but to just separate the camps. Uh, so they weren't really tactically deployed, but uh, the, the Minnesota regiment was outside the town and the 9th Michigan was in the middle of the town, and when Forrest's guys swept in, they, they uh, uh, the, the Michigan men were like falling out of bed, out of their tents and their long johns and, and, and bl blazing away and, and they were pretty much destroyed as a regiment in that fighting uh, while the Minnesota guys were outside of town and, and the Michigan men kept waiting, when are they going to come and rescue us? But Lester, as you said, the colonel was not eager to get involved. Uh, do you think he was drunk? Did, did you find, an, was there other evidence to support that, or is that just the usual excuse to explain bad behavior? I think it's still um, debated. Um, there's a, a, 
Um, I myself am not a military historian. I'll, I'll confess that at the very beginning. I'm a social historian, so I came at the war from that angle more. But there is another scholar who uh, looks at the Third Met Regiment and is writing about that. And I know that he has really tried to find um, definitive information about this. Um, and I think the jury's still kind of out because it's really difficult to separate out the bad feelings that people had about Lester's decision from what the reality was. But it certainly sounds as if he was uh, cowardly, <laughs> um, is what most people seem to say, is he was drinking either to avoid the whole um, uh, responsibility, and so that was his way of coping with it, or he just wasn't, um, uh, if he wasn't drinking, then he was really trying to avoid uh, fully engaging. And so he, he backed out and, and surrendered as quickly as possible. Yeah, he, he, some companies, including Bowler's company, engaged in some skirmishing, and he describes uh, a canister being fired overhead, which uh, a canister round is, is not when you'd want to fire over friendly troops, but uh, they avoid getting hit by it. And uh, it's really a, uh, uh, it's not a well-organized defense and the officers vote on whether to surrender and they vote not to surrender and Lester has them vote a second time right and they come around to his way uh, I think so, they, that they don't actually their vote really doesn't matter <laughs> true <Yeah. laughs> so it's sort of like okay well let's get this over quickly then if it's really going to be over yeah it, it's um, not that there's any analogy between a, a department chair and one's faculty uh, in terms of votes not mattering, but you want people to feel empowered. Um, these things do happen, I suppose. The uh, the the experience is, as you say, humiliating for for Bowler to surrender, and the, the troops were weeping and breaking their weapons against rocks so they wouldn't fall in the rebels' hands. Uh, the Ninth Michigan, I know that I had read about previous to your book. Uh, uh, had the same fate. They were the survivors were captured, and both regiments, all the regiments captured there, were paroled. Uh, uh, you know, just gave gave their word of honor they wouldn't fight and sent back north. So, so where does Bowler go from here? Uh, for, for a while, they were staying at Benton Barracks in Missouri before the parole goes through, and then um, that's for uh, the later part of the summer. And then they hear word that there's been an attack by Dakota Indians on some of the western settlements in Minnesota. And so they're called back to Minnesota um, after the parole and are part of what was called the Indian Expedition uh, to uh, try to track down the Dakota who had been involved in um, what was called, sometimes called um, the Sioux Uprising um, or the Dakota War and uh, to free the captives that the Dakota had taken um, as part of their attacks. So it's ironic, um, he comes back to Minnesota, but he doesn't stop to see Lizzie, and she's very unhappy about that. Um, and so he's in Minnesota, actually, you know, at war, um, but at the opposite end of the state. Now, if, uh, if this works for our uh, our corporate overlords at World Talk Radio will take a short break here and uh, come back and, and talk some more uh, about Go If You Think It Your Duty, uh, edited by or, or written uh, because there's, there's a lot of annotation uh, by Andrea Ferugi. Uh, this is Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> ¶¶ 
stay linked to your desktop or laptop, take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. In the hustle and bustle world we live in, we need to be reminded that in all failures and successes, we are the common denominators. The change needs to come from within. Each week, let Daniel Gutierrez and Osmara Vindel help bring you the tools you need to manage your success. We'll talk with the movers and shakers of business and personal development and see what makes them tick. The only bilingual radio show, right here, right now. Aki Ia Ora airs live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to the Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Andrea R. Farugi. She is the author of Go If You Think It Your Duty, a Minnesota couple's Civil War letters. It's uh, a, a fascinating compilation of letters between uh, a young couple, Elizabeth Califf and Madison Bowler. He served in the third Minnesota. She stayed home and uh, uh, took care of uh, family members. They uh, exchanged letters, and unlike so many other couples' letters, uh, in this case, letters from both parties were preserved. Uh, and have been transcribed and published with a very useful and uh, uh, detailed annotation that helps understand what's going on uh, throughout who the characters are. And it's like, uh, it's a fascinating window into uh, the experience of the Civil War, not just from the soldiers' side, but from uh, the view of people who stayed uh, at home during the war, who waited for the soldiers, who cared for and worried about them. Uh, and it gives us an insight into uh, courtship, into gender relations, into the uh, the way marriage worked. Uh, and that there's a, a spoiler for those who are planning to read the book, uh, uh, which I highly recommend. But uh, uh, Andy, the, the after the battle at Murfreesboro in July '62, the uh, and the subsequent fighting in the Sioux campaign, uh, the they, they finally do get together. They've been writing letters now for uh, uh, for over a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Madison finally does get to visit. Uh, uh, and, and how does that work out? I think Lizzie, um, we don't have evidence for this, but I think Lizzie just tried to get them married as quickly as possible because he was in town. Um, and um, it's clear that he would only be there for a very brief time. Uh, he was able to return to eastern Minnesota in mid-November, and they married on November 30th, and he um, returned to uh, his post on December 3rd. So it was a very whirlwind affair to make sure that, that they did 
uh, were able to marry. Um, and then he's in Minnesota for uh, a few weeks, but but they're separated. They're not near to each other, but they do reconnect a couple times before he finally um, goes south um, for a second time in early 1863. So, and he'll he ends up uh, in the Vicksburg campaign. Uh, yes, or near Vicksburg, and then then in the campaign to take Little Rock. But uh, as I was reading this. My interest, and I'm, I'm sure Madison's interest too, focuses much more on how Lizzie is doing because uh, as they ex- write rather coyly back and forth to one another, it's pretty clear that she's going to have a baby. Right. Um, as as the spring unfolds, they they do hint to each other in, in um, that something's going to be happening and, and there's a lot of um, innuendo, as you say. And he becomes worried um, because he's not sure that he'll make it back in time uh, for her delivery. And she really wants him uh, to return. But it becomes clearer and clearer over the summer that he's not going to be able to get away even after Vicksburg um, falls. And this is a great disappointment um, for her. But some of their most touching letters are around the time that their daughter is born in September of 1863, um, when each of them begins to identify as a, a father and a mother, you know, as a parent, um, as part of a new dimension to their family. It, it, it is, it, it really does humanize uh, these people. It's very easy for people who read uh, any kind of history, but Civil War, particularly military history, to see the, the armies as numbers or or to see them as individuals but as tactical units uh, to be deployed on the field uh, or duplicated in miniature on the table but not as uh, husbands and fathers and uh, it really does bring an element here. It also uh, shows the relations between husband and wife in an interesting way. Uh, he writes to her about his commitment to the Union, especially uh, in 1863 and then, then 1864 as the election approaches, the presidential election approaches. And she clearly has her views, and they, they exchange political views. These, these letters are not just love notes back and forth. Right. Yeah, they range, the topics in them range a lot um, from uh, ideas about uh, the behavior of the highest generals uh, in the Union Army to uh, Lincoln's policy. They do mention the Emancipation Proclamation and their um, responses to it. Um, but also to farming. Uh, this is the, the backbone of, of the community that uh, Lizzie's living in. And so they talk about the seasons, seasonal change, weather, what things are growing when, um, how are people faring in the economy. Um, and then as well, they uh, negotiate with each other over parenting. Um, when should the baby be allowed um, to, or when should the baby be required to sleep in a separate cradle is of great concern to Madison, um, for example, or um, is she learning to walk fast enough or things like that. Um, so the range in the letters, I think, makes them also really interesting because it gives you um, a glimpse into the war and, and keeps it, you know, um, linked to what's happening that way. But it also reveals very much that life continues um, between those who are gone and those are, who are at home um, and that there's a lot to be said about what goes on at the home front. And historiographically, if you go back you know, 30 years, the interpretation of, of marriage in, in this era was that 
men and women occupied separate spheres. The, that uh, the woman was the, uh, the the master of the household, was responsible for the moral climate, for the upbringing of, of children. The husband worked in a separate physical location, uh, or in wartime, literally went away, uh, dealt with the capitalist economy on the outside. And they each had their own worlds, and these were separate worlds. And letters like this show they both are heavily involved in each other's worlds. Mm -hmm. I think that those worlds, I guess I don't think of them as fixed things. There are clearly things that Lizzie does not understand about what Madison is doing, especially when he's at war. But she also seeks his guidance about things like selling land, how much um, she should be able to, to get per acre, and negotiating somebody leasing the land, um, and, and so on. But she, so it's not her preference to be involved all the time in, in things that would be, quote unquote, part of his sphere. But they both do cross over those, what used to be drawn as kind of very clear boundaries. They, they are certainly interested in what's going on in each other's lives and where they overlap. And, and that, uh, it, it really comes to a head in terms of his decision whether or not to reenlist uh, in 1864, that she is is convinced that where where she may have said go if you think it your duty uh when the war begins now she really thinks his duty is to his family very much so yeah she's she's come to the 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 point where he hasn't yet seen their daughter um and and only does when he returns home um because he was injured um i i joke in the book that his his battle injury or war wound is that he fell off the bleachers uh, while he was uh, at a at a circus and broke his leg. Um, and once he healed enough, he came home and took his furlough then. Um, so he only sees his daughter this one time uh, over the course of the war. And so she really feels that he's um, neglecting his duty to she and her daughter, uh, to uh, her family, her dying sister. Um, she really sees them as part of a, a tightly woven and tightly knit community. And for him, what's important is his men and the men that he lives with day in, day out, who are um, serving the country and fighting uh, in something that um, he's always had a sense of what he was fighting for in terms of, of the union. And so it's um, it, it becomes this negotiation over how do we fulfill duty to family as well as to country, which Lizzie sees as it's one or the other, and he sees them as inextricably caught up with each other. And I, I could not love thee half so much, love I not honor more. Uh, I've forgotten which poet said that, but uh, uh, th that for him, he couldn't be, he couldn't play uh, uh, the role as a citizen, as a male. Uh, as a husband, as a father, if he didn't serve in the military when other men are doing so. And, and she uh, sees that he can't be a husband father if he's not there with the wife and child. They negotiate whether she might come stay with him, especially as the war comes to an end. Uh, even then, he's planning to stay in Arkansas, uh, where he's stationed. Uh, right. Uh, so what does happen? What's interesting about that is that... Um, 
the third Minnesota uh, does do the expedition to Little Rock and end up um, occupying that, and that becomes really a role in terms of reconstruction. And um, so there is, I mean, the war is continuing, but it, it's about occupying this location. And so the officers set up, um, you know, relatively comfortable living. And, and so at this point, he's very uh, confident that if Lizzie came with the baby, uh, they would be comfortable. They sh would be able to um, uh, visit and meet new people, experience something really different. And at that point, um, Lizzie feels so um, sure that he should return and that her duty is to make sure she. there's a real fear of going south that her daughter will be sick. Um, um, so it's, it's this um, tug of war. Uh, between the two of them, which Madison eventually wins. And I think the reason in part he wins is Victoria, their daughter, is getting a bit older. Um, at this point, she's um, almost two. And the economic history just prior to the Civil War was such that it was really difficult to have jobs in Minnesota. And so for him to be continue to be employed as part of a Reconstruction Army um, was a, a way that he could try to um, build up enough money to support his family uh, when they do return to Minnesota. So he sees it sort of as a, I, I'm already employed, why would I give this up? And uh, she just sees it as this is way too far away from where I see us living um, as a family. And, and that's the kind of thing, again, that uh, readers can relate to. It's not uh, in any tough economy, that kind of situation will come up where an opportunity will pull one spouse in one direction and uh, the other elsewhere, possibly. Very much. When I, I think what's really interesting about this book, which I lost sight of sometimes, you get so close to a project that you sometimes forget, is when people read it, they would say, wow, this reminds me of the stories that we're hearing um, during the Iraq War, or what's going on with um, our military um, uh, service people in Afghanistan. And so there really is this resonance of, of how do couples manage wartime across different centuries and different wars. Yeah, it is a fascinating issue. There are many little uh, stories in here that that I found uh, really interesting. The in in February of, of uh, or the spring of eighteen sixty two on on drill, he talks about going uh, 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 serving on picket duty one night with a loaded musket, and then for one reason or another, he wasn't able to uh, uh, to empty it to, at, at the appropriate time. So. And he forgets, but he stayed up all night. He's had no sleep, and he forgets that his musket is still loaded, uh, and you're not allowed to discharge uh, a weapon within the camp. And he goes on, on drill, and the company drills uh, with the colonel in front of them, and they they ordered to bring the pieces to the firing mm -hmm. position, and they all pull their triggers with you know empty muskets except his, and he almost <laughs> kills Colonel Lester. Uh, which, had he done so, would have caused a different outcome probably at Murfreesboro. <laughs> Uh, but uh, that kind of detail just you know is fascinating to read in the letter form too. It's not as if he uh, were, were writing a novel where he could construct something like that. It really distinguishes it, or in some ways, there are moments when you read this and it reads like the memoirs, which we have so many of in the post-Civil War period, and um, which really do have a narrative to them. But because he was writing them as a story almost to his wife and really trying to give her a sense of what his life was like. Um, 
it, it has that narrative flow that some letters and, and certainly some diary entries that soldiers are writing on the ground don't always have because it's sort of here's a brief quick comment and, and now you know I'm on to the next thing. So Madison really, he sees himself recording what is going on as an important element of his war experience. The uh, I really regret it took us so long to get organized today because we're almost out of time now. But let me ask you very quickly about the letters themselves. Uh, where did you find them? They are housed in the Minnesota Historical Society in St. Paul. The family donated them um, in the early 1970s to the Historical Society. And so I began working with them while I was a graduate student. And that's and they, they're still there. They're... Um, they're wonderful letters. They're written on various kinds of paper. You can really see them, um, the wear and tear on them, uh, which was part of the reason why the uh, Minnesota Historical Society Press was very interested in having me transcribe them uh, so that we can reduce uh, their likely, uh, dis the likeliness of them being destroyed or, or damaged as people work with them. So now any reader can read them. And uh, as I said, you can, uh, listeners, you can get this book uh, in through uh, various uh, you know Amazon, Barnes and Noble type websites, uh, and you can you can try it electronically if you haven't done that. This was my first experience reading a book entirely online, and uh, I'm still going to have to get a paper copy because I don't feel complete without uh, a copy on the shelf to reference. I'll send you uh, one. Uh, I, I would love it. It was uh, I have actually paid for an electronic copy, uh, so you'll get your. 32 cents royalties for that whatever <laughs> we get these days um, but uh, it really is a, a fascinating look into this, this very human couple's wartime experience uh, both from the, the military tactical viewpoint the social history viewpoint it's uh, uh, there's uh, something for everyone in it uh, I, I wish we had more time to talk about it but thank you for being patient and for joining us on the show today thank you very much for the opportunity and listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com